what triggered this bizarre behavior. Journey into the cold heart of northern darkness with Nordic crimes. That case uh, became like a scene from a horror movie. A new true crime documentary series that chilled the bone. The hunger for killing is increasing in the course of these homicides. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Nordic Crimes is a part of the Acast family. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even though she was still my strongest alibi witness, Dean didn't even call her to trial. So I'm sitting there at a trial, and my principal alibi witness, who's going to tell the jury I was with her that morning, is not there. So what do you think the jury thought? Hello, and welcome back to One Minute Remaining. My name is Jack Lawrence, the host and creator of this show. Today is part four of the story of Temujin Kenzu. Known in 1986 as Fred Freeman, he was arrested and convicted for the murder of Scott Macklem. A murder that happened over 400 miles away from where multiple witnesses place him. It's a crime he says he's innocent of, and has spent the last almost 37 years trying to clear his name. So by now, we know what happened, and we know Temujin says he didn't commit this crime. He didn't know the victim, and he was in fact over 400 miles away from where it happened, living in an area of Michigan known as Escanaba. So let's take a look at his alibi to see just how airtight it really is. Uh, the night prior to the murder, I was on a date with a girl named Beth. Um, I, I actually just spoke to her for the first time in 37 years, a few days ago for the wow. listeners. Anyways, I went on a date with this girl named Beth. We went to eat at a restaurant called The Stone House. This is in Escanaba, of course. And this is the night prior to the murder. Now, uh, just for the listeners, their theory was not that I, that I was just there at 9 o'clock. They, they claimed that I was probably there by 8 o'clock. You know, and then I suppose he's scoping the place out. They just made all this up. But according to their story, I must have been there by 8 o'clock. Well, 2 o'clock in the morning, 6 hours and, you know, almost 500 miles away, when the speed limit was 55 and there was a massive blizzard and the driving time was about 10 hours to get down there. And the Upper Peninsula's main highway, which is US 2 and 41, was closed on the 4th, the day prior to the murder, the 5th, the day of the murder, and the 6th, the day after the murder. I'm on a date in town, so I'm having problems with my car. I had a I had a Mercury Marquis, and I was having electrical problems with the vehicle, and the battery went dead, and we were stuck. We left the restaurant, and we went over to what's called Big Boys. Uh, it's a chain in the States here, and um, we were just sitting there in the parking lot talking. 
the, the main restaurant we were at, you know, was a very nice fine dining place and it closed pretty early. And so we were sitting in the big boys parking lot talking and it was getting cold, very cold, the vehicle. And so I went to turn it on to warm it up and it wouldn't start. So by about one o'clock in the morning, um, I, I couldn't get the car started. I went into big boys and I called my friend, Paul DeMars and I, I woke him up and, uh, I said, could you please come help me charge my vehicle? I went to the standard station next door. I got a pair of jumper cables and I had to give a $25 deposit for those. So there's a witness and evidence. And, uh, of course there's a phone call from the big boy phone to Paul DeMars proving that there was a call to Paul's home phone from that pay phone. Um, obviously I couldn't know that unless I made the call and, um, Paul came over to where I was. Beth and I were inside the big boy because it was freezing outside. We went out to charge the car. The manager was um, uh, named Scruffy McNamara, and uh, I knew him from the local uh, area, him and his brothers. Uh, there's Brian and Jeff. And um, so uh, Tuesday nights, they serve uh, cream of broccoli soup. Uh, big Boys does a special soup each day. So he knew exactly when it was, and he gave us, he had a big leftover tureen of soup, and he gave us three large containers of this soup, kind of warm us up. We went out to charge the car, and while Paul was charging the car, Beth and I were sitting in the front seat eating the soup and talking, and she was getting concerned because it was so late. I believe she had foster parents. I, I hope I got that correct, that they were foster parents or adoptive parents, but she said they were going to be very upset with her for being late, and I was explaining, oh, don't worry about it. You know, I'll tell them what happened. I'll, I'll take the fall. Now, the reason that matters is because she made it very clear. I was not a person in a rush. I was not trying to go anywhere. She was worried about getting home. I'm up at the upper peninsula saying, don't worry about it. Everything will be fine. That really matters because if I had a rush downstate to kill this guy, and if I just had to get there at that time for some crazy reason, I would have been in a rush to get out of that parking lot. Meanwhile, I'm just relaxing. So she's upset. And I said, you know what? How about this here? And Paul uh, decided to drive her over to her car because I picked her up from her workplace, took her back to her car, and then she drove home. And then Paul came back to make sure my vehicle was running. And once we made sure it was running um, and I got out of the parking lot, okay, Paul drove on home. So I left, I left the big boys anywhere between 2.30 and 3 o'clock in the morning, just five hours before they claimed that I was 500 miles away or 464 miles away, whatever, whatever map you use. Uh, to, to get down to this parking lot when the speed limit was 55. I'm not sure what that is in kilometers. So I drive home and now I'm with my, uh, my son's mother, Michelle, my pregnant girlfriend. And by nine o'clock, the dogs are going crazy and they wake us up, or the puppies. And so I take them outside to go to the bathroom. So far, all seems pretty solid, but much like the police would have done, let's see if we can corroborate this story with Michelle, the mother of his child. I was with him that morning, yes, yes. And so um, he was out the night before, but he got home in the middle of the night. I Like right now, I don't remember the, not, the uh, time, but I do remember the morning um, specifically. One, because I've talked about it so much and given so many testimonies about it, but... Yeah. Um, it was roughly nine o'clock where we woke up and we, um, it was a little farmhouse, like I said, out in the middle of the country, out in the nowhere. We looked outside, it was snowing, it was beautiful. Um, we got up, made breakfast. Um, we had, uh, our cat and two dogs and, um, 
just had a real nice morning. You know, we got up together, we had a shower, they got ready to go into town. Um, took us a probably, I don't know, it, it, well over a half an hour to get into town just because of the snow. It was, it's real snowy up there and freezing in the wintertime. So yeah. um, I do remember the snow is at least about, at least two to three feet high on either side in the driveway. Just trying to get out of the driveway. And the driveway was like a real long country driveway, so... And um, Shelly and I had a bunch of things to do in town that day. So we hop into the car. We drive over to my landlord's house. I drop off some vitamins. He's going to a seniors benefit uh, event with his wife who was an invalid. So we know exactly what day that was. And then I go into town. When I get into town, I'm seen by my Taekwondo instructor at Cho's Black Belt Academy, along with students there, including nurse, local nurse, Kathy uh, Dyer, who's teaching the Wednesday class. And she only teaches the Wednesday afternoon class. And she signed in the log. And it's, of course, there's a time on that too. So we know that I'm in town by 1140, the day of the murder, two hours and 40 minutes after the murder, we know that I'm in town with Michelle, seen by multiple people. I think we got there around 1130 or so. Um, and I do you remember that day we went into the karate school um, and talked with John Manali. He was the owner of the school, a karate instructor, and they were sharing karate stories back and forth and stuff. Mark Sherman was in the Taekwondo school. Mark Sherman is a, uh, I believe he was a construction worker. And he knew exactly what day it was because he had a PTA meeting that day and he had to go be there for his daughter and he had to leave class early. So we've already got multiple things confirming that I was there. Uh, we went into the Swedish house, I think it was a Swedish house called Restaurant, um, Sunny's Treasure Chest. So we went there. Treasure Chest was a novelty store. They sold trinkets and, yeah, knickknacks. you know, things like that. Um, yep, yep. All kinds of novelty items. Those stores were really big in the States in the 80s. Nunchucks and throwing stars, martial arts stuff, rock and roll banners, all kinds of things. And I had ordered some uh, sparring equipment, uh, punching bag gloves, things like that. And uh, my order was there, and so I took that box and I put it in the trunk of my car. That box was still in the trunk of my car when I was arrested with those items. And so we know when that was, and there's a, there's a signed receipt for that, of course. And we did see a lot of people that, um, that he had met already, and I'd met a few of them, not all of them, but we saw some people in town that he knew. So While we're on the sidewalk coming back, we see Amy Creighton, Mike Olson, and Dash Deal, who are skipping school. And we know from their school records, they skipped that day. And of course, we know that after about 20 minutes, I go down the street to the real estate place, and the woman's got me on the blotter there with my name, noon, showing that I came in to ask about a rental property. So there seems to be no wavering on what happened that morning from Michelle or Temujin's accounts. What about these witnesses? Well, former Port Huron detective, now private investigator Herb Welser, says that there's one very important factor to two of these witnesses. Have you spoken to many witnesses that say that they saw Fred on, on, that, on the particular day that this all happened? Yes, two of the most important witnesses uh, involved in this case were at the martial arts studio in Escanaba. Uh, at 11.45 a.m. Uh, the day of the murder, and the murder happened at 9 in the morning in Port Huron. Mm. So one of them is the owner of the martial arts studio, and what's most interesting about these two witnesses is neither one of them really liked Fred Freeman. Uh, the owner of the martial arts studio thought he was kind of a, a showboat and 
uh, didn't really care for him. But the other one, a woman that was in there, really didn't like Fred at all. Thought he was a real jerk. But both of them said, "Oh no, he was he was in that martial arts studio at a quarter uh, to twelve the morning of the murder." Yeah. So, and that's important and because obviously they're not they're not like his the, best friends that are covering for him. Obviously. Right. Right. They did have friends uh, that came in and testified that that afternoon they saw Fred and Escanaba, but the two main ones really didn't like Fred to begin with. And my car breaks down that day in the Kmart parking lot. The Kmart's is a few blocks from the Taekwondo school. And so I don't want my car to get towed. And I go in and I get the managers. And I say, please don't tow my vehicle. It's this burgundy marquee. It's sitting out there. I had problems with it last night. Uh, I had to figure out what's going on. And they were kind enough to write a note to the employees. This is Gene Lundquist and Patrick Kennedy saying, do not tow that red marquee. We talked to the owner. We know about it. It's okay. He's coming back. He's going to come back and get it. There's a phone call on my phone card from a place called the Flapjack Shack. It's a pancake restaurant right next to the Kmart's on my phone card for that day in Escanaba. And, but it gets better. I not only tried to buy parts for my car, which didn't fit, but I returned those parts back to the Kmart and we have a timed, dated, signed, stamped receipt with my name, my address, the parts that I bought, off their little old style register computer with the same manager's signature on it for the refund the day of the murder. So you're talking about numerous documents that placed me in town that day. The blotter, uh, the treasure chest purchase, the Taekwondo school log entry, the Kmart's receipts, the check, the $25 for the guy at the gas station for the deposit for the cables the night prior, the soup the night prior, Beth confirming that I was with her, Paul DeMars confirming that he was with me with the broken down car, the Kmart's managers. I want everybody to know these witnesses had no reason to lie for me. I'm new to this area. Now they, they, there's this local guy being accused of murder. They hear he's you know got a warrant or he's, he's had a bad check charge. He's got a probation thing going on. He's not the best guy. They have no reason to lie for me. I'm not having an affair with these people. These are not drug partners or sex partners. They barely know me. And they're still saying, I, okay, great. He's a bad guy, whatever. But he was definitely here in town that day. Almost all these witnesses I'm still in contact with in some way. And they're still my supporters. And even the ones that I'm not in contact with are still my supporters. Not one has ever recanted their support for my complete innocence. I mean, some have gone on with their lives, but they still admit that I'm completely innocent. You might be thinking this sounds like a pretty watertight alibi. I mean, a murder happens in Port Huron at 9am in the morning. Police believe the shooter had to be at the community college prior to Scott Macklem arriving, so let's say at 8am. So Temujin leaves the parking lot of the big boy's restaurant around 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning. He then has to get from there to Port Huron to commit this crime in five hours. The drive time, according to Google Maps, would take at least six and a half hours. That's now with new highways and better infrastructure that wasn't in place at the time. We know from multiple sources that in 1986 this drive would take you over nine hours to complete. Let's also not forget that on the night of this murder in Escanaba, it was snowing heavily. 
Now, even if by some insane miracle he makes it there in time to commit this crime, multiple witnesses then place him back in Escanaba in town at around 11.45am. So, if he kills Scott Macklem at 9am in Port Huron, he now has under three hours in which to make it back in time. So how on earth does the prosecution say he does it? They literally, their first theory, and I want listeners to know that this is true and this is in the transcripts. Their first theory, get ready everybody, was that I teleported. Now you guys, you guys are all like out there going, oh, that, that yank's full of shit. No, it's true. They literally said to Kathy Dyer in a recorded interview, do you think he can teleport? No, that, and that's she said, just, are you a... That's are, insanity, yeah, dude. Because, recorded police interview, and she said, quote, are you an effing idiot? Did you really just ask me that? I think we can all understand why that one didn't end up being the number one theory for how Temujin Kenzu committed this crime. So we're going to take a short break, but when we come back, the theory on how he managed to kill Scott Macklem makes its way into the courtroom. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Did he come to you with a, with, with a play and say, oh, well, you know, you're probably better off taking a play, but it, or was it always trial? Yeah, so that's what led to the torture. So what they did was they originally had me in the maximum security part of the jail. But in maximum security, there's a phone. You can actually use the phone pretty much all day if you wanted. Yeah. And um, the minute I got on that phone and I started calling some people saying, hey, um, you know, can you find everybody that saw me in, like I called Dash, find everybody that saw me in town on Wednesday. I need to know everyone that saw me. And right away, he's like, okay, Mike saw you, Amy saw you, and so on, right? And of course, I saw Dash that day. He was with Mike and Amy. He's finding witnesses. They had a fit. They went nuts. And so Cleland ordered I be removed from maximum and placed in a special isolation cell called L cell, which I have photographs of. This thing was brutal. They put me into a cage with steel mesh screen on it. I'm in a dark hallway all isolated by myself. There was one other of these cells. They would put mental health patients in and they would have people that are just screaming and ranting and throwing urine and feces all day long. And that's, that's where they kept me. They would open this window and literally freeze my cell till there was my toilet water was frozen ice. It would be that cold in there. 
they stripped me of my bedding. They stripped me of my clothing. I wasn't allowed to have any books. I wasn't allowed to have writing materials. I would take notes about, about the case. They would take my notes and tear them up and throw them away. I wasn't allowed to bathe. I had to literally drink out of the toilet. I had to wash my face out of the toilet. I had to beg with them to turn the toilet back on so I could flush it. This is all true. This is all a matter of record and it's all true. While they were trying to force me to take a plea bargain. So Dean would come to me and say, hey, I got you a 15 to 25. And I'm like, you're the guy that said you believed I was innocent and we're going to have this multi-million dollar lawsuit. And he goes, yeah, you know, but you should just take this deal. And I wouldn't. And then I get back to my cell and what little I had would have been destroyed. And uh, my, now my blanket's gone and my bedding's gone. And I'd be like, where's my blanket and my bedding? In a blizzard, freezing. And they'd say, oh, it's being washed. It wasn't being washed. It had just been taken. They would have me turn my clothes and you have like a, a jail uniform to say they're going to wash it and they would never give it back. So I'd be in my underwear for like a week. I mean, it just went on and on like that, just torturing me. Mm. And then he'd come back and go, oh, I got you a 10 to 15. I got you a 10 to 15. This is how desperate they were to close this thing and have me say that I did this. Now, for the listeners, in Michigan in those days, a 10 really meant about a year. Yeah, right. Because what they do in the States back then, we had what was called good time in those days, which would take a third off your sentence automatically. We had correction centers in those days, which is where you, you went out to live in the public, but you were locked up at night. And then you'd go out and work in the daytime. And you could go to that four years from your first out date. And then I would have a year in the county jail. And then we had camp work programs. You could be out in the streets working right away. So I literally would have gone to what's called quarantine, been processed, and probably been in a, in a work camp in a matter of weeks if I simply confessed to a murder that I didn't commit. Temujin Kenzu is on trial for the murder of Scott Macklem. From everything we know so far, he would appear to have a pretty strong alibi. Yet police and the prosecutor in this case, a Robert Cleland, still seemingly believe they have their man. Now, this name, Robert Cleland, the prosecutor, is an important name to remember as we go through the court proceedings, as we will refer to Robert Cleland a few times. So at the trial, no less than nine alibi witnesses would take the stand. Now, you might be wondering if one of those nine is in fact Michelle, the mother of Temujin's son, who says she was with him 9am on the morning of this crime happening. Well, no, Michelle would never make it to the trial. So did you attend much of Temujin's trial? No, none of it. I was not called for it. When I first moved there and they had an arraignment, I did go to that. Right. And that is another very, um, very vivid memory that I have of the um, attorney that was, I guess they're called the prosecutor. Yeah. Yep. The prosecutor, um, Cleland, he, he just walked past me and just stopped and stared like just this icy stare, you know, right into my eyes. And then it was pretty scary. He, and I was sitting in the front row. That was of his arraignment. And um, he was very intimidating. Even though she was still my strongest alibi witness, Dean didn't even call her to trial. So I'm sitting there at a trial and my principal alibi witness who's going to tell the jury I was with her that morning is not there. So what do you think the jury thought? My witnesses are all saying Michelle was with me and Michelle's not there in court. Yeah. And I'm like, where's Michelle? And I, and I, I swear to everyone, and Michelle wrote an affidavit about this. He claimed he didn't know where she was. Then he never told her the trial dates. She never knew until I was convicted and it was in the Flint Journal and she called the jail and the jail said, your girlfriend wants you to call her at this number. And I called and she said, I've been hiding in Flint. Dean never even told me about the trial. So she was happy, now, to, again, so she was happy to take the stand. 
happy to take the stand. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so then when I tried to let the court, uh, get the court to let me bring her in, say, hey, he didn't call my most important alibi witness. She came down to the courthouse and was in the hallway and they would not let her in the courtroom to come in and give testimony. They literally would not let her in the courtroom to give testimony. And these people are monsters. They're absolute monsters and they have no shame about what they did. So nonetheless, with no Michelle at the trial, we still have nine witnesses taking the stand. Here's investigative journalist and supporter of Temujin Kenzu, Bill Proctor. They somehow managed to diminish the credibility of nine human beings, witnesses who came down from Escanaba to take the stand under oath to say that Fred Freeman, Temujin Kensu, was with them at a certain time of day, November 5th, 1986. Now, what's interesting about that is, is that n- nobody managed to uh, diminish the government's argument that back in 1986, the driving distance may have been 500 miles or a little more on roads that were nowhere near as good as they are now, uh, freeways and things that have been built since. So the, the distance, say, from... 1.30 a.m. on a day down to 9 o'clock on the very same day, that's only eight hours. The minimum drive, even when the cops were speeding, trying to match the time window for driving, uh, meant that they were nine hours and 15 minutes of drive time. So it, it never, ever, ever made sense. That's why that crap came up about, oh, gee, he must have caught an airplane. Never mind, he could barely pay his 250 or $300 a month rent. That's right. The prosecution would surmise that in order to successfully commit this crime, Fred Freeman must have got a private plane from Escanaba to Port Huron and back again and was behind on that rent at the farmhouse where he was living. But he managed to find somebody that nobody's ever found to catch a plane, fly, drive, park, everything clandestine. I mean, it's just all so absolutely ludicrous. And yes, the the people who talk to you and you tell them the story have reason to shake their heads because this doesn't sound like anything that was a part of a legitimate trial with people speaking under oath. Um, This was a prosecutor who managed to convince these people based on a bunch of crap. I don't know how much I can cuss on your show, but there's a whole lot of bad words that I can (laughs) use about what was thrown thrown at this jury. But the the real bottom line is that that, that this was just a bunch of bull uh, laid out in front of people. So how do they fix the alibi? Well, they they say I could have flown a, a private jet because I had to be flying like 500 miles an hour to do this. So remember, folks, it's 86. It's a blizzard, frozen farm fields. These planes take an enormous runway area. They cost thousands of dollars to rent for jaunts like this. Even back then, it's a couple grand to charter something like this. But I've got to convince a pilot to do a secret mission. So their theory, and this is their actual theory from the case, is that I went to a pilot, I convinced him to fly a secret mission, to take me to a secret landing area where somehow I got a brand new car. Remember, no cell phones back then, so I don't know who I called for a car. There's no GPS back then. I don't even know how I told this guy where to land, because remember, he's a pilot from Michigan's Upper Peninsula, and I'm supposed to be flying to some secret place. So nowadays, you'd be like, hey, go to GPS coordinates 49.371, whatever, right? It's on Google Maps, here you go. We didn't have that back then. 
So I've got to convince this guy to take his half a million dollar or a million dollar plane and fly a secret flight for me while I change into my killing clothes with my apparently my shotgun bag to get to this suspect car. And then uh, by eight o'clock in the morning, I got to be at the college. So I guess we had to fly out and be landed in the secret farm field by seven in the morning. How do I get the car? Who do I call to bring me a brand new car? Now I've got a bunch of what collaborators with me on this thing. I'm I'm a, I'm on welfare in a two hundred dollar a month farmhouse, <laughs> driving a broken beater down car that I can't even get to start. Now I'm chartering secret jets with collaborators, whole pile of them. To your knowledge, um, he he didn't hire a plane by any chance. No. Yeah. Most no, right. we did not. We had a. I mean, I don't even know. I think that that little cabin was like two hundred fifty, three hundred some dollars a month or something. It was really really inexpensive. And, um, no, we, in fact, one of the sweetest memories, I mean, we have a lot of sweet memories, but one of them was, uh, before the baby was born, he took me to, I never knew anything about this, but he took me to a Salvation Army store and they had this little sale of all the clothes that you could fit into a paper bag for $5. And so (laughs) we, we folded up our little baby shirts and baby pants and you know, all that for for our son. And um, he showed me how to roll them all up and put them in little balls. And <laughs> so we got a lot of great clothes for five bucks. <laughs> but yeah, we did not have the money to charter anything. And then I've got to go, I guess I tell the pilot, you just stay on standby in the freezing cold with your plane in this secret landing area. Because they checked every airport. They checked all the logs. They talked to I don't know how many pilots. And they couldn't find anybody to say any of this. And then I got to go wait however long it takes me to commit this crime to kill this guy I never met over this girl I dumped and never called. And then I got to rush back and I guess get rid of the car. They never found a brand new 86 Ford Escort missing or sitting around anywhere or anything even close to it. They ran police checks for dozens of vehicles and searches for several model years and so on. And then I got to get back to the pilot and go, shh, let's go fly and pay him thousands of dollars to fly me back the other way to go to the Escanaba airport who confirmed that no such flights ever took place and the airport wasn't even open. 37 years, no pilot comes forward, nothing. And then I've got to get to my broken down car to drive all the way back out to the woods and rock with Michelle, who, by the way, apparently must be lying. It must be one of my co-conspirators because she's passed two polygraphs confirming that I was with her the morning of the murder at nine o'clock, exactly when it was happening. So that's their stupid theory. She passed a polygraph with their polygrapher, Mr. Lanfear, who said she's absolutely telling the truth, that she was with me that day and that I didn't do this and that we were up north. But they haven't charged Michelle with murder or aiding and abetting a homicide because they know their whole story is bullshit. If they thought this was true, they believed Michelle helped me commit this murder. They believe she helped me pack my bag and we got in that car and she got me. She must have got me to the secret airport. I mean, it just goes, it's such bullshit. They, they, they made all this crap up. And the reason they didn't charge her is because there was no proof any of this ever happened because they know it didn't happen because they know I didn't do it. It's important to point out that this theory was not presented with any evidence that a plane had in fact taken off from Escanaba and landed in Port Huron at the time of the murder. They found no pilot who said he took Temujin on a flight. There was not even any records that someone had called around to inquire about how much it might cost to charter a flight from Escanaba to Port Huron and back again. However, what they did do was bring a so-called independent witness, expert pilot, to the stand to testify. The airplane story, of course, is completely insane, and nobody's going to believe this. 
So what they do is they bring in this pilot and they put him on the stand. He's just an, just an innocent bystander in this whole thing, but he's a pilot. And so Cleland's like, can you tell us just how this whole thing might work? Let's say somebody wanted to like charter a plane to go do something. This is what this dumbass says, ready? Oh, there are pilots just sitting around all day long in hangars, polishing their planes, waiting for a fare, like a taxi cab, Jack. <laughs> Nobody does that in the States. Yeah. There's no pilots just sitting around waiting for some stranger to walk up to charter their plane. They, they have charter schedules and chartering services or, you know, the, the hangars are at airlines and there's charter services there. You can't just walk out in the tarmac and walk into a hangar and where people's planes are at. Even in the 80s in the States, you can't do that. And since 9-11, you really can't do it. You couldn't just walk into the hangars on an airfield. You would get arrested probably. But regardless... Um, he says, yeah, they're just sitting there. Poly-. He literally used the quote, polishing their planes, waiting for, you know, somebody to want to charter one. And I'm like, really? So we already know the Escanaba airport was closed. Where did I just go strolling into a hangar at? Now, as we have learnt throughout this story, there's seemingly underhanded work at play at every turn. I mean, even Timogen's own defence attorney being connected to not only the prosecutor's office and having a drug problem, but also having defended the lead detective in his own case to get back on the force. Well, it would appear that there was something else not quite right. And it was to do with the so-called independent pilot expert. This scumbag who was pretending that he didn't know anything about the case and he was just offering some casual information. Ready, listeners? was Robert Cleland's personal pilot. Let's not forget Robert Cleland, who's the prosecutor trying to convict Temujin Kenzu. The more and more that you sort of go look into this case, the more absolutely shocking it becomes. You know, the, the pilot who gets on the stand ends up being a, the private pilot or the prosecutor or the guy who was flying him around. It's absolutely, it's, it's insane. <laughs> And the pilot had his own really bad reputation. Apparently his ex-wife has told people that the, um, if he said 10 words, you can count on five of them being a lie. Wow. Um, it's, it's just, <laughs> just that kind of interesting uh, background and history. And uh, yeah, the, uh, the pilot had a, had a checkered history before his demise. Um, I never knew him, met him, never made any phone calls to find out about him. But um, our, our ace private investigator, Herb Welser, uh, has found out a lot about him, and um, and yeah. And how I found that out is I met with Harry Hudson, the other detective involved in this case, and me and Harry met one night for about two hours at a Tim Hortons restaurant and talking about it, and, and Harry said to me, he said, well, Herb, you know who the airplane pilot was, don't you? And I said, well, all I just know his name is Bob Evans, but I don't know anything else about him. And he said, well, that's uh, the pilot of Bob Cleland who would fly him around to his speaking engagements when he was running for attorney general. Robert Cleland was running a campaign for the attorney general's office, which he had lost the day before this murder. He lost on November the 4th. The murder was November the 5th of 1986. He lost the bid against Michigan Attorney General Frank Kelly. Nobody wanted Robert Cleland to be the attorney general of Michigan. He had a terrible outcome and a terrible campaign, and he got his butt kicked. But regardless, that was his personal pilot that he took everywhere with him. 
The guy was a notorious drunk. He died a couple of years ago. He crashed three planes in his career. He was just a, a piece of garbage, according to every witness we talked to. This guy was a slime ball. And he was massively beholden to Cleland. Yeah, who's now a federal judge. Yeah, this was his personal pilot he used. So he brought this guy in, pretended not to know who he was, put him on the stand as an expert witness, quotation marks, to say, oh, yeah, he could have easily chartered a plane. I know I could not have easily chartered a plane. Well, first, I would need an enormous amount of money. And secondly, any pilot worth his salt and, and an FAA license is not going to endanger his life and career for some dumbass with a shotgun in a bag who wants to get on his plane secretly. We're not talking about drug cartels here. We're talking about Michigan's Upper Peninsula in the 80s when it's like 90% square white Christians. These are not people flying drug flights out of Miami, Florida, which was, of course, big in the 80s. This is, these are really old school farming Mennonite Finnish Christian communities full of Germanic immigrants. No one's going to do this for me. Not, not then and definitely not for any kind of money I've ever had my hands on. You have one minute remaining and that's all we have time for but coming up the courtroom theatrics would continue as for some reason in the court they had laid out a table full of weapons but with seemingly no explanation as to who owns them or why in fact they're even there and yes the, the people who talk to you and you tell the story have reason to shake their heads because this doesn't sound like anything that was a part of a legitimate trial with people speaking under oath Next time on One Minute Remaining. One Minute Remaining is a Mash Pumpkin production. Hosted and produced by Jack Lawrence. Editing and sound design by Jack Lawrence and Dom Evans. This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.